Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. Are you a source of stress and anxiety for your coworkers? <clears throat> um, I might have been a source of stress and anxiety for my brother. Ah, you texted. I Christ. knew you were coming. I knew you were coming. <laughs> she was late getting to the studio so we could check in with each other. You know, coffee. The co- I, I get it. We all need coffee. I know. And some days, you know, you don't get that one cup of coffee started at exactly the right minute. And it makes you, you know, a minute late. Mm-hmm. And one one minute makes a big difference here. So good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. You are my sunshine. I I will not um I will not sing this to you, but go ahead and allow yourself to sing it. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. So I can still hear my mom singing that to my niece when Mia was. Too little to understand the words. Um, But my mom just showered her first grandchild um, with so much love. And Mia is now 21 and a junior in college. And my mom's uh, heart toward her has never changed. And I hope that Mia hears the echo of that song in her heart. You know, even as she walks on days that are dry and on days that are dark, um, as she walks out into a world um, where, you know, it's not always, um, it's not always joy and light. It's just not. So who do you know that needs a little sunshine today? Whose parched life needs a shower of living water? Maybe it's you. And so let me encourage you to recognize and acknowledge that um, Jesus, as the light of the world, turns to his disciples and says, you are the light of the world. And so if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are the one um, who gets to go be shiny out there in the world. And you're also the one that knows the way to the living water that flows from his love. So I'm going to connect today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day from Matthew 5 to the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And so where in the word are you today? I am in Matthew chapter 5 verses 44 and 45. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Now, if you're living in the desert, rain um, you know, is such a gift. So it's, uh, it's a good thing for rain to be sent um, on the just and the unjust alike. So read in conversation with Jesus's demonstration of love to the woman of Samaria that he met at the well in John chapter four, um, what do we learn not only from what Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, um, act as true children of God, 
not not just what Jesus says, but what he does. How does Jesus shed light into the dark life of another person? How does he um, send rain, living water, into the parched life of the woman he meets at the well in John chapter 4? I mean, there were, by all cultural standards of the day, these two people were enemies. Um, Jesus was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. The pronouns in that also indicate to you he was a man, a rabbi, in fact, um, and she was a woman with a very bad track record and a terrible reputation. But Jesus didn't prevent the cultural barriers of the day or the or the cultural reality that they should be seen as enemies. He didn't allow that to um, get in the way of allowing his light to shine or letting the living water of his love flow into her parched life. So if you've not done so lately, I'm going to encourage you to read John chapter 4 and can just consider the radical transformation of the life that Jesus met at the well. Who do you know that needs a little light today? Could you let your little light shine? Who do you know today that needs to be shown the way to the one who is the living water, whose parched life um, needs to be drenched in the love of God? Could you be a conduit? Could you be a person who walks with them to the well today? You and I are going to um, spend a little time together here this morning. Up next, I'm going to share with you the farm report. But first, this little tidbit of news. Do you know Bob Ross? Do you remember Bob Ross? Is his name familiar to you? Is his artwork familiar to you? So he, um, his very first on-air piece of artwork, very first thing he ever painted on the television, um, was called A Walk in the Woods. These happy little trees. And he completed it in just 30 minutes and initially sold it at a PBS station fundraiser. And so, you know, there, there's a, um, that's kind of a fun little factoid. Well, the person who bought it hung it in her home for nearly 40 years, and then she sold it to a gallery last year, and that gallery is now selling it again. The price tag? $9.85 million dollars. That's pretty good for um, uh, a kid from Muncie, Indiana. I note this because Muncie, Indiana is also where I was born. So um, who came from your birthplace uh, and what notable thing could you lift up about them just to get just to get the conversation going about the places we have come from um, and the places we now walk in life? All right. Friday Farm Report is up next, along with a produce prescription. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Let's get some sun. Friday Farm Report lead off taters, taters, sweet potatoes in uh, this particular case. So Matthew and I have been diligently working the last couple of evenings to um, what is an archaeological word for digging things up? Excavate. We've been excavating sweet potatoes for the last couple of nights. Um, and ordinarily, it's a project that goes much more quickly than it's going for the two of us. But ordinarily, there are at least four people 
working on this project together. But one of our four people has gone off to college and another one of our four people is currently um, stomping around in the Gunnison National Forest, having a grand time, I'm sure. Uh, and But the time the time had come, like it was time to, to dig the taters up. Because last year we waited a little bit too long and some of them started to rot. And that's just gross. You don't you just don't want to stick your hand into a rotten potato in the ground. Just trust me. So um, but th- it's been very, very dry here the last few weeks. And so it's like they're um, they're buried in concrete. <laughs> and, you know, you can't dig them out with anything but your hands because you don't want to actually damage the potato. And so uh, it's, been, it's been quite the little archaeological project uh, extricating the potatoes from the ground. But we've got quite a quite a haul. Um, we had a full wheelbarrow full, so that's a pretty good that's a pretty good tater haul for us. And other um, other farm related farm report news. Oh, by the way, I mean we did a little short um, Facebook live video. So if you're my friend on Facebook, or actually I think it's public, so you can just go to Facebook and look for me. And uh, it's not on my, like, public, like, formal Carmen has a fancy job page. It's just on my personal page. <laughs> you can watch it. Matthew and I digging up potatoes. Um, so uh, sweet potatoes, that's a good, good Friday farm report. Uh, and then also I have a report for you on the coop cam. Remember, we've been strangely only getting, like, a couple of eggs every day. And we have a lot of hens. And so it's very suspicious, very suspicious. Matthew was convinced that somebody was stealing our eggs. But, you know... <laughs> You know, we don't really live in a place where that is likely to be happening. And so um, we told him we would put a camera up. And and let me just tell you this, you know, those cameras, those game cameras, they are designed to take a picture every time something moves. And so let me just tell you, chickens move a lot. They just move a lot. In fact, one chicken can, can be in the frame and just barely move its head or a feather or twitch. And, and you know, you get like, 16 pictures of that chicken in fast succession. So uh, anyway, so we set it so it would only take a picture every five minutes, which is actually a fairly long period of time. Um, and so you miss you miss something then. Uh, well, so anyway, uh, is, this is this is really weird. Since we put the camera in the coop, we now we now have five eggs every day. Okay, so I just find that incredibly suspicious. So I still don't know why we're only getting five, but we're now getting five. And here's the good news. Uh, a couple of days ago, one of our six juvenile hens uh, started laying. So that means that we are on our way to, you know, something like 11 eggs a day, which, you know, is really good because we have a big family and uh, everybody expects the LaBerge layers to be on the job. All right. Uh, produce prescription. Do you have a produce prescription? Well, let me issue a produce prescription today. Let's take a I guess we'll just uh, we'll just we'll just do that after a very very brief break. Um, produce prescription. If you were going to write a produce prescription, what would be on it? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So glad you are listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is Bill Arnold. I would love for you to check out my podcast in the afternoons. It's called Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Spent the entire marketing budget coming up with that name, but we do scripture engagement and have lots of fun. Make sure you can check it out at myfaithradio.com. Elena is seven years old. Um, the doctor, you know, is looking down her throat and checking, you know, what they, you know, how they put their fingers right under your jawline. Yeah. 
Uh, Elena, at seven, needed her tonsils removed. The pediatrician was also concerned um, about her skin and her hair and her teeth. They didn't, they just didn't look quite right. The doctor knew the family um, did not have consistent nor secure housing. They weren't, they weren't living consistently in a healthy place. Um, So he, he asked a simple question of Elena's mom. What else do you need? And without missing a beat, she answered, food. And that, the doctor smiled, I can prescribe. Imagine getting a produce prescription. It's, uh, I'm hoping it's going to become a trend. It has at least something that is happening in, specifically in North Carolina. It's called a produce prescription. It's part of a growing network of ways in which, um, Local communities, in this case, the state of North Carolina, um, but also churches and food pantries, schools are working together to make sure that children and their families have the healthy food they need. So in North Carolina, it's called the HOP program, H-O-P. It's the first of its kind in the United States, and it's aiming to um, uh, address the underlying causes of childhood illness. So kids, kids get sick. For all kinds of reasons. But poor kids get sick more often than kids who have um, safe, secure housing, um, enough healthy food to eat. Um, And so, you know, children living in poverty in the United States of America get sick. They go to the emergency room for help. So that is uh, one problem we're trying to resolve here. Um, But consistent access to healthy food, reliable transportation and safe housing are are the important three things for kids to remain as healthy as possible, right? So how might a produce prescription improve physical and mental development? I mean, because it would improve the health outcomes, reducing um, the particular utilization of emergency rooms in particular. But also, you know, they're going to have not only fewer days that they miss school, but they're going to do better in school because they will have eaten well and hopefully slept well the night before. You see the combo. You see the combo here, right? So um, this is a pilot program in North Carolina, and I expect that it'll be duplicated across the country over time. But why would we wait? Why would we wait for the government to do this? Like, if we know this is a need in our own communities, then how could we, you and I, be making healthy produce unrefined grains and unprocessed meat. That's the, that's, that's the combo that we'd be looking for here. Because um, dairy products are actually already widely available, butter, cheese, and milk, widely available to people, particularly um, on Medicaid. And so um, what we're talking about here is how we make healthy produce, um, unrefined grains, and unprocessed meat. How do you make them available to families who are struggling to make ends meet? And how do we do that in our own communities? So this is a great project for your church or your small group or your neighborhood. It answers the question that Jesus is going to ask each and every one of us. What did you do for the least of these, my brothers and sisters? When I was hungry, did you give me food? When I was homeless, did you help me find safe shelter? When I was on the road and hurting, here we'll jump to the story of the Good Samaritan. Did you pass me by 
or did you stop and show me mercy? So this produce prescription is is actually relatively simple. Excess produce from your garden, excess produce from your orchard, excess produce um, from your greenhouse, packed up and set somewhere that families who need it um, can can receive it. So that might be a local food pantry, a food distribution center. It might be your local elementary school or middle school. Um, our um, our elementary school, middle school, and high school has a table in the cafeteria, um, and it's it's stocked all the time with um, fruits and vegetables. And kids are not only invited to, you know, take something to supplement their breakfast or lunch, but there are bags there for them to take things home. There's a bench outside this, um, we have a, we have like a clothing um, closet in our community called Noah's Ark. There's a bench outside of Noah's Ark um, where neighbors drop off ex- excess produce from their gardens and other people freely pick it up. There's a um, like a cupboard, like a step back cupboard, you know, with glass doors, a step back cupboard sitting next to the soda machines in front of a local, local grocery store where I live. And so neighbors who have more than they need um, you know, here we're obviously talking about things that don't need refrigeration, but, you know, so all those healthy grains that you're buying for your own family, um, you, you have more than you need. Well, you put them in this cupboard and then neighbors who don't have what they need, just take what they want. In another community, um, not, not my own, but, um, but down the road from us, in cooperation with their very small town government, because I think this would require, um, you know, more than just you hauling a deep freeze out to the edge of the road and figuring out how to plug it into a light pole, because that's what that's what they've done. So obviously, I think that the the town is in on this in this particular circumstance. But there's a there's a big chest freezer placed in the corner of a parking lot. It's plugged in, you know, to like a light pole. And people who have extra meat, Supply for those who need meat to feed their families. It's all neighbor to neighbor, and it's happening in lots of places around the country. I wonder if you have an example of this in your own community. If you do, would you text me, 877-933-2484. Community gardens um, are wonderful. Um, and and then church-based community gardens, also really, really fantastic. Thank you for those two notes there. Um, I'm, I'm familiar with a church that was, you know, waning, right? Numbers getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And they had this big ball field from a generation ago, but nobody ever used it. And so they converted it into a community garden. And now there's people from all over their community on their property all the time um, growing their own good food. And it's created opportunities for community and generational um, connection on and on and on. I learned this week about a cooperative effort in my state called Feed America First, They collect and distribute food by the metric ton every day. It's like a giant clearinghouse for food that would otherwise go go to waste. And instead, it finds its way to people who need it. I mean, friend, where there's a will, there's a way. And where there's a willingness to work, there's certainly a way. So what's happening where you are? Um, how are hungry people getting access to good food? What's, what would a produce prescription look like in your own community? Text me. I'd love to I'd love to hear your story. 
877-933-2484. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, I forgot. I mean, like legitimately, it would, I mean, I'm not making a joke here. I legit forgot that yesterday was World Alzheimer's Day. Every year on September the 21st, there is a global effort to raise awareness and highlight efforts to combat um, Alzheimer's, which affects so many individuals and families. I am thinking about people in my own life who have been, um, who directly affected by Alzheimer's, like, right, they suffered from it themselves. But, you know, by extension, everybody in our family um, was affected and everybody in their communities and on and on and on. So I'm thinking here about my paternal grandmother, um, Nettie Mae, and um, my Aunt Marilyn, my Aunt Pat. Um, I'm thinking about um, my cousin, Barry, who suffered early onset Alzheimer's and died in his early 50s. Thinking about my Uncle Chuck, who was diagnosed six years ago and is actually doing quite well. Um, So who do you know who's been directly affected by Alzheimer's? Who do you know who is living with Alzheimer's now and the constellation of people around them? Because every relationship is affected. Um, Every day is affected. Every task is affected. And so let's challenge the stigma related to uh, dementia of all kinds. Um, and, uh, and let's be people who continue to remind one another of the goodness of God. And, um, and that even as this world grows strangely dim, the light of his glory and grace shines all the brighter. So um, memory is, uh, is a real gift. And so let's be people who remember well and remind one another often of the goodness and the glory of God. Chris Martin's going to join us next. We're going to, um, well, would you be would you be considered a Luddite? That's probably just a good question. Would you be considered a Luddite? Do you even know what a Luddite is? Because you might be one. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Our friend Chris Martin is back. Uh, he works for Moody Publishing. He's also um, just my favorite conversation partner for all things social media. Hi, Chris. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. Um, am I a Luddite? What is a Luddite and am I one? Oh, I don't know if you are one, uh, but this <laughs> author in uh, an opinion column in the Washington Post makes the case that we all should be Luddites. Typically, okay, so like there's a dictionary definition of a Luddite, I guess you could say, like a correct mm-hmm. Uh, objective definition of a Luddite. And then there are like the more colloquial definitions and uses connotations of what a Luddite is. So typically when I hear the word Luddite thrown around, it's just meant to be somebody who's slow to take up any technology or like anti-technological progress at all. So often a Luddite would be, you know, someone who refuses to have a smartphone or still prints out their directions from MapQuest circa 2001 (laughs) or whatever. Um, Or, you know, somebody who's totally anti-social media. That would be someone who's called a Luddite. And that's like, you know, an accurate cultural usage of the term. Obviously, these terms like this take on a life of their own and transform and morph over time. And so we understand why why, why that is called a Luddite, that sort of lifestyle or philosophy. 
Um, but technically speaking, as this author, Brad Merchant in, in the Washington Post reminds us, um, a Luddite and, and where that term comes from, um, the, the group in England who kind of rebelled against technological innovation during the Industrial Revolution, Luddites were, did not hate technology. Most of them, he says, were skilled machine operators. In the early days of the Industrial Revolution, what they objected to were the specific ways that tech was being used to undermine their status, upend their communities, and destroy their livelihoods. So these Luddites took sledgehammers to the mechanized looms that were being used to exploit them. And so the Luddites were not, like like he says, contrary to popular belief, idiots who broke machines because they didn't understand them. They were cloth workers who once led comfortable lives working at home or in small shops on their own terms and on their own schedules with freedom and dignity. And then entrepreneurs tried to move their jobs into factories by using power looms, wide frames that did similar work faster, more cheaply and in more shoddy ways. And the Luddites protested, which is why they took hammers to these devices. Um, They weren't, you know, anti-technology. They were anti-technology ruining their lives. And so I think what's important for us to think about as we think about our relationship with technology or uh, what it means to be a Luddite, if we still hear, you know, I I don't hear a lot of young people using that term. I I tend to hear people my age or older using that term. But if we start, if we, if that term comes back into fashion or if we throw that around, we should recognize that Luddites would be uh, not against smartphones as a technology or even social media as a technology and a, and a service, what they would be against is these things being used to exploit people to, to it's, it's one of the examples cited in, in this article is like Uber or other such delivery services claiming to be a software company so that it doesn't have to play by the rules of a cab company, which we all recognize is really what a service like Uber is. Um, and so it's, it's what it would mean to be a Luddite today uh, for anyone who's interested or uses that term would not be to be anti-technology, but would be to be anti-technology breaking the rules to exploit people, which is ultimately what the Luddites were pushing back against. And and I think I agree with the author of this article. We should all be Luddites in that sense of the term. We don't need to be Luddites in that we need to be anti any technological progression. That would be the incorrect but often used cultural definition. But we should be Luddites in that in the truest form of that word and the truest definition and that we should be against technology being used to exploit people. Um, and there's, I don't want to call out any companies in particular, but we all have seen stories in the news or examples of ways that technology is used to exploit or even like extricate people out of a process where it would be better to have people. So like right now, just one example is the, there's like strikes going on in Hollywood, writer strikes, mm-hmm, actor mm-hmm. strikes, things like this. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of a Luddite movement without being called it because a significant reason these actors and and writers are striking against studios that they work with is uh, they are afraid of like AI pushing in in the writer space or for a long time studios have like used have like overly relied on CGI and computer generated um, assets in their movies rather than using actors and like 
basically to save money, a studio is going to CGI create something rather than have an uh, an actor uh, recreate that scene or, you know, to save money, to keep the actor from being paid perhaps what they should be paid for what they are doing. And so I think we should, like, that is a good example of um, resisting technology that could exploit people or extricate people from a process um, and that, that they should be involved in. And so I think that's one example without calling out a particular company or anything like that, where, um, you know, maybe we should have our ear to the ground on, hey, how are some ways that technology we're regularly using might be exploiting us? And how can we push back against that? So um, there are developments, technological developments that um, make some people's jobs a thing of the past. Um, I mean, we don't need as many farriers anymore because we drive cars with rubber tires, we don't drive horse-drawn carriages. We don't ride horses as much as we did in the past. Maybe that makes me sad because I like horses. But um, I also couldn't go as far as fast if I had a horse and not a car. Um, and so at some point, you know, being a farrier became something that was uh, not not nearly as needed in the culture because of a technological advancement. And so then I would look at the development of of EVs that are replacing over time combustion engines. And I look at the people who currently build um, the kinds of cars we've been driving since the days of the horse and buggy. And those jobs are in transition, maybe, to people who will build or robots who will build Um cars that don't run on combustion engines but you know on batteries which it's a whole other conversation i'm not here to debate the the ev revolution but i am saying that there is this uh there is this way that the the world of what we do changes over time um because there are developments in technology and so i think that um i think we are in one of those periods of history where you can either cling to sort of the way things ha- have always been done in your lifetime and imagine that that is the kind of security in in terms of your job and what you do that you should always have or you or you adapt with the with the times and that may mean that you go and do something different than you have always done but i don't think as a culture it's our job to guarantee you the job you've always had if we've moved from horse and buggies to cars. Yeah. And I think that's right. I think what is important is because hopefully, and and I would say theoretically and hopefully someone whose job is overtaken by some technological advancement could go find work somewhere else, you know, uh, and, and doing similar work or using a different set of skills that they have or whatever. Um, Of course we don't know that, but theoretically, hopefully that would be the case. I think what we need to be aware of is, ways technology may exploit human labor or or otherwise like harm harm us in our use of them a la social media having dramatic negative mental health effects or um the way that some uh ride sharing companies have exploited their workers by basically 
having them work full time, but not providing them any of the benefits of working full time or um, kind of the ways that because so much technological advancement is on the bleeding edge of things. Sometimes these companies, because of greed or whatever else, can kind of get out ahead of the law. And then the people who work for them, especially the lowest kind of level people who work for them, can often be the ones who have to pay for the fact that a bleeding edge technology organization company can uh, operate beyond the law because the law hasn't caught up. And so I think what we need to be aware of just as Christians and be, and care about is not so much jobs being replaced and, and, and complaining about that, because I think, like you said, that's a kind of a natural progression of things and, and we can adapt and change the kind of work we do. What I think we should be kind of aware of and, and care about concerned about is how in this sort of intermediate time, maybe some bleeding edge technology companies take advantage of people mm-hmm. by getting around laws that haven't quite caught up to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. No, that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Um, all right. In other news, um, I thought about deleting my Twitter account. And then I learned that you shouldn't actually delete your Twitter account. You should do something short of that, because if you delete it, then somebody else could just claim your same Twitter name and then post as you and people who think they're following you would really be following something else. So I don't know. Do you have any input on that? So here's a random idea for you, because I've thought about deleting my Twitter account as well and have thought of some strategies to maintain uh, my username. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and keep it from, you know, someone in person. I'm not concerned about someone impersonating so much as I might like to have my username if I came back to Twitter. Mm-hmm. You could theoretically create a second Twitter account and just create a dummy name, you know, one, two, three, four, five, X, Y, Z, or whatever, you know, just make a dummy name and then change your primary Twitter account, uh, your Carmen LaBerge one. And then immediately change that second Twitter account to your old one, like in the same 30 seconds so that nobody could just like steal your name. So then you have a secondary Twitter account now that has your old username so that you have both. So you don't have to worry about uh, losing it. Um, Does that make sense? And then so you could always go back to having that original name if you wanted. Okay, I will. Uh, I will seek further consultation on this particular <laughs> private matter later because uh, I don't know how to do any of those things. So, um, Chris Martin is uh, is so gracious to help us understand what is happening in the world uh, in the in the world of the social internet. Um, and the wolf in their pockets is his latest book. It's just excellent. Um, uh, you can um, you can connect with him uh, at Moody Publishers, where he is a content marketing editor. We're going to talk next about how teens, how teenagers are feeling about being online. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen.
Our friend Chris Martin is back. Um, We're going to talk about feelings and how teenagers feel about being online. What are we learning here, Chris? Yeah, so this publication called The Cut, um, I don't know what they even specialize in, but they've written a a good handful of uh, social media articles over the years, and I enjoy reading their stuff. Um, The author of this article, Anya Kamenetz, uh, looks like a freelance writer, wrote an article entitled, just published yesterday, I asked 65 teens how they feel about being online. And then she shares a quote in the uh, subhead. Social media is a necessity. You take it away from us. It's like, oh, wow, we have nothing left. Mm-hmm. And I love reading about this because obviously social media is not only a teen enterprise, but teenagers dominate social media in that um, so, like so much of culture, as teens go on social media, so their parents and grandparents go. Um, and we've seen that over the years, and it, it continues to be true as time moves forward and we see social media evolve. Um, And so I always love reading and hearing what teenagers think about social media, not because they're the only users of it, uh, but because they're kind of the leaders of it. They're kind of the trendsetters and and where they go, all of us kind of go. Now, naturally, there are some unique experiences teens have because of their stage of life, because of their youth and their lack of brain development or things like that. Um, And so I also like reading what teens have to say because using social media while attending high school, as an example, is a far different experience than using social media when you're 40 years old and working an office job. Um, Because when you're 40 years old and working an office job, social media can kind of be a part of your life, maybe a, a hobby even that just kind of orbits around your identity and who you are and what you do. When you're a teenager using social media, and I even experienced this in the early 2000s, but it's exponentially more the case now. When you're a teenager using social media in high school, it is central to who you are, what you do, and how you build an identity, at least as far as how your peers perceive you. And so I think reading what teenagers say and understanding what teenagers have to say about social media can be really insightful, not only about the lives of teenagers, but about how we use social media generally. So in this article, the author shares some general thoughts at the beginning because she herself seems to be quite young. Uh, and and then also um, a good number of quotes from teens who have been on social media since they were young teens. So here's just one example. This is the violinist turned Bible study streamer. She is, her name's Madison. She's 18. She lives in Texas. She's been on social media since she was 14. She uses Instagram and Snapchat. And I'll just read a little bit of what she says to this to this author. Uh, She said, when I was about to begin my freshman year of high school, I got Instagram and someone threatened to kill me over DM because I wouldn't date them. I blocked them. I didn't ask for school to get involved. It's an awkward thing to discuss with adults. I feel like it would be a domino effect. It would either get worse or the school wouldn't do anything. Eventually I switched schools for a bunch of different reasons. And this is a key quote, I think from, from her adults can invalidate the feelings of kids. Schools say they have a zero tolerance policy for bullying and harassment. But do they really? My school had that policy, and that literally never stopped it. Um, Then she goes on to just share about how at my old school, I'd be on my phone 12 hours a day, including in class. And now she is a classically trained violinist, but she also teaches a 365-day Bible study over Instagram and Snapchat. So she's figured out a way, even at her young age, she's just 18 now and has been using social media since she was 14. She's figured out a way to use what was initially a very negative experience on social media and figure out how to use it in a positive way. Here's another quick example. 
um, this is a guy who's from Salvador, uh, from El Salvador, and he uh, had to flee in 2017 due to, due to gang violence. He's 17. His name is Selvin or Selvin. Uh, he lives in Naples, Florida. Um, and he said uh, after, you know, he he fled El Salvador and it, social media has been a really great way for him to stay connected with his own culture from back where he's from. Um, he said, my parents taught me don't listen to strangers or click random links. He said the school in the U.S. had training on that, but it's not really advanced. And at the end of the year, when there's nothing else to teach, that's what they would teach. They would teach social media. He said, you see these pictures of people. He lists some famous people, Kardashians, all these people with perfect bodies, perfect homes, and perfect relationships. And you start to wonder why you can't have those things too. Social media can make it feel like everyone else has it all figured out while you're still struggling to find your place. It's like this constant pressure to be perfect or at least look perfect. And it can be really exhausting. So that's from uh, Selvin, who's 17. And so I think um, there's all kinds of other insights in the article. I think it's really helpful and interesting. And I, I think the more we can listen to young people and their experiences with social media, the more we can not only maybe help them gain perspective, but we can gain a little bit of perspective ourselves on kind of what they're experiencing and what social media is like for, for young people. Uh, I appreciated their candor in their responses. And again, uh, Chris Martin and I are looking at a piece at thecut.com, um, how teens feel about Instagram, TikTok, social media, how teens feel about being online. Um, I I would say that my overwhelming takeaway from this was that um, young people are, we talk about the need for resilience and we talk about the need to, you know, like in, in discipleship, we want you know, we want people to be resilient and we want to figure out how to do that at an earlier and earlier age. Um, how can we grow up resilient disciples? What I over and over and over again, these testimonies in this piece um, are really about resilience. Like kids are yeah. figuring it out. That, I mean, young people, I should say they, they are figuring it out. The one about the, you know, when he was in fourth grade is when he learned how to yeah. deal with on online harassment. And he did it by Googling, like, how do I stop negative things coming over my, you know, and so like they are figuring it out. And so um, I think that there there is absolutely and I, I'm I am like this. There is a tendency, particularly maybe among Christian parents to just limit their access, to just keep them away from it. Um, but the reality is everybody in their generation is living online. You've had this conversation with us many, many times. Yeah. And so preparing them to engage there in ways where we can protect them as best we can, but also like allow them to engage with their yeah. peers um, is really important because th this is where they live Right. And one, one quick comment on that. The, I think when you are a parent and you're considering whether or not to let your kid on social media, what I've always said, because I always get that question, when should they, when should they? And I'm like, ah, I don't really know that there's like a def definitive answer. I think you're, you're just choosing between one of two sets of problems. If you don't let them on social media at all, you're creating a s situation of social ostracization where they're just going to be totally left out of a lot of social circles. And you're going to have to, as a parent, figure out how to deal with a kid who constantly feels lonely and left out. And you're going to have to learn how to deal with that. Or if you just give them unfettered access where they can do whatever they want, well, they're going to make a lot of messes and you're going to have to help them clean those up and recognize when they've made mistakes and all of that kind of stuff. Or they're, or they're going to have people who harass them and you know they're going to have to deal with that. And so I think neither choice is perfect. It's kind of a decision of which set of problems would you would you rather deal with as a parent? And I don't again, I don't know that there's a right answer, but I think if you think one of them is more safe or better, 
uh, you'll learn, I think, quickly that neither one is necessarily right so much as just a different set of problems and challenges. Uh, one of my um, favorite phrases in this piece is a, lo a logarithmic rabbit hole. Yeah, it's the, great. The rabbit hole created by the algorithm that feeds whatever it feeds into my particular feed. Yeah, that's very interesting. Anyway, Chris, as always, thank you so much. Great to catch up with you. That's Chris Martin. He's a social media expert. Um, the Wolf in Their Pockets is his latest book, and it's just absolutely fantastic. Uh, he works with Moody Publishers as a content marketing editor, and he's our friend. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be back in just a moment. All right, I invite you to make plans now to join me this coming Monday morning for a very special hour as we get to kick off the Faith Radio Fall Fundraiser. So every hour of the Fall Fundraiser is going to be filled with stories of how God is working through the ministries of Faith Radio to reach people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus and equip friends just like you for those moment-by-moment -moment opportunities to connect faith to life. So two big things. First, um, if you have not done so already, please share your Faith Radio story with us so that we can share it with others. You can go to MyFaithRadio.com and share your Faith Radio story. That would be awesome. Um, second, maybe I'll have three things. Second, please pray. Please pray for um, the fundraiser. Um, this is the way that this ministry is financially supported. And so we need you to give your best gift and we need everybody else to give their best gift as well. So be praying that um, God would till the soil of hearts and um, and lead people to give generously. All right, and then maybe third, mark your calendar, like literally like on your phone probably, set a timer, set a, um, an alarm um, for 6 to 7 a.m. Monday morning. Um, why? Well, I would I would like for that to be appointment listening. I can't tell you why. Right now, the first hour of the Faith Radio fundraiser is going to be so great. But trust me, you don't want to miss it. So I can hardly wait. Um, Paul's excited too. Yeah, he and I'm very I are excited. Gonna, I, mean, I wish right? we could we tell people. We can't tell them why. No, and we can't tell you why. But <laughs> six to seven a.m. on Monday morning is like appointment list. Like you are not going to want to miss it. Please don't just miss be it. here. Just be here. Just seriously. Like, we, we'd love to tell you why, but we can't. So just go ahead and make it an appointment. Um, looking forward to uh, seeing you in the 6 to 7 o'clock hour on Monday morning. We do have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up right now. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, Click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.